0: What's up, John? How's it going, man? Good, good, Robert. Nice to see you. Yeah, welcome, man. Welcome
1: to the show. Thank you. Which sounds way cooler than welcome to my wood panel basement. <laughs> yeah, I
0: don't know. I like the wood panel basement.
1: I could do without the wood paneling. The basement's pretty sweet. but Yeah, I, I like the wood paneling. Yeah, this is our first episode down here, so I'm pretty excited for that. It's been a long time coming. I haven't done an episode in probably over a year at this point. Alright, and what's the
0: name of this podcast? It is called Breathing Room. Breathing Room. Breathing Room. You're probably going to do like a whole intro and I just ruined it.
1: Nope. No, you, you nailed it. That's the intro. Okay. Breathing yeah, room. no,
0: I think this is episode 14, something like that. I'm trying to make my voice sound extra sexy too.
1: No, it's great. Yeah. It's really turning me on. Working on it. <laughs> yeah, man. So it's been, been probably a year and a lot has gone on in that year. Um, the studio that I was recording at over in West Asheville... Uh, they had a major flood and they shut down. Where was that? That was right off of uh, Vermont Avenue okay um, it was called Asheville Play Studios okay so they shut down and then I got sober in that time Spoiler alert and then there's like a pandemic or whatever so right. not too many people want to sit three feet apart and have a conversation
0: right well I'm vaccinated I don't know you know I'm I'm halfway there Good good
1: which means nothing yeah. Might no, as well I'm just not be at all.
0: Not even sure being vaccinated means anything, but... No, but, it, you know, it feels good to think we're protected at least. Right. Yeah. I mean, I'm not sure about the science behind it, but... I... I'm a strong believer in the placebo effect.
1: Oh, yeah. And if you believe hard enough, you can't get the virus, I that's think. right. I think that's how it works. Yeah.
0: I think so. Yeah. Which one did you get? Oh, this is the... This is one of those new questions that's going to be asked. I got that I, Pfizer...
1: Oh, we got that P. Dog. I got that Pfizer. Yeah. yeah, yeah, me too. Yeah.
0: Did you have any crazy side effects? No, no, I didn't have any. I mean, I had a sore arm, but that's about it. Yeah, I, uh, yeah, I didn't. No side effects. Not that I'm aware of. I keep waiting for the inner voice of Bill Gates to give me stock advice. <laughs> yeah, I, I asked him that at, at the at the place where I got the vaccine. I said, When am I going to hear Bill Gates give me stock advice? They didn't answer.
1: They probably didn't like that.
0: No, it's, you know, it's kind of like, you know, jokes at the airport. Right. You know, there's certain places they just don't, they, their funny bone is not in operation.
1: Doesn't mean we can't try.
0: That's right. Yeah. Got to try, except for at the airport. Don't try at the airport. Yeah. Words of, words of wisdom and experience.
1: I've had some interesting experiences at the airport with TSA. I don't know why. I don't know if there's like just something about my face. They don't like the cut of your jib. That, I think that's it. That's right. Your don't jib, like your jib is not cut right. No. I have to get a recut. But uh, yeah, so we have to take a second to pay tribute to the fact that we're doing a sobriety podcast on 420. Oh, yeah. that's. If you had told me that like not too long ago, I don't think I would have believed
0: you. That's right. Happy Stoner Anniversary. Yep. Or, or Stoner New Year. Stoner New Year? Yeah. That's what somebody told me today. One of my old friends. I, I keep uh, there's a couple of friends that I had from high school that I used to really get down with that I still am very close friends with, um, and so I'm grateful for that that I've been able to maintain some of those friendships because some of those friendships were developed prior to the drug use. Right. And do you hear that? I it's do. Like a fluorescent light sound. Yeah. Is it, is it the your- light?
1: Let me fuck with this one second. Sorry about that. No, it's all good. I hear it too.
0: And we're back. And we're back. So I think the, what I was saying about those friendships is I was, those friendships were, were not predicated on drinking and drug use. And so, although it sort of evolved into that, after the drinking and drug use, a lot of those friends stuck around and were mostly respectful of my change because I found that the people that really cared about me understood that it was something that needed to be done.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, Did it, did it take some time? Like, did you have to take time apart before jumping right back into that? Or was it a pretty smooth transition?
0: Well, it wasn't, it wasn't an intentional boundary in terms of, you know, I didn't say, well, I'm going to have to take, take a break from you guys. It was more that, my time started to get taken up with more things related to recovery. Right. And so the time that I would have had to sit around and put on Pink Floyd albums and just go to outer space was reduced. And that's a lot of what we used to do together. For sure. So, um, you know, that it's true what they say about when, when, um, looking at extinguishing a behavior you want it's it's more effective if you can find an appropriate substitute Mm -hmm. versus saying you know just stop doing that yeah look at what here let's add something where you've taken that out and that was a big piece of what um you know the recovery community did for me was add things for me to do that were productive hmm
1: So tell me about what it was like when you first got sober. How long ago was it in town or where was it?
0: Um, Did you jump right into fellowship? So um, I want to give a quick caveat. So uh, um, a lot of my experience and my sobriety has been greatly informed by Alcoholics Anonymous. Mm -hmm. That said... Nothing I say represents Alcoholics Anonymous in any way. Sure. Yeah. I'm so, glad uh, let's clear that up right now. Right. I'm not I'm not a, a spokesperson for AA. Um, you know, take what you need, leave the rest kind of thing. Yep. Um, so I'll I'll share my experience and it includes a lot of AA. So um the other thing I like to say about that is there's lots of ways to get sober. Yeah. Uh this one worked for me. Mm-hmm if somebody out there is having a problem with drinking and they find another way to get sober, I'm not going to chase them down and say, you're doing it wrong. You got to go to AA. Um, I'm going to say hats off to you, man. Yeah. Good. Good on you. So any way you can get it done is the right way. The, The objective is, you know, if you have a drinking problem, abstinence probably is, is one of the key tools in your toolbox. Yeah. And whatever makes that possible. Now, you know, Uh, I don't want to go too far down the rabbit hole on this, but, you know, some people um, will advocate for um, a harm reduction model and moderation and those sorts of things. Um, For me, moderation would not work. It, It didn't work. For me, moderation
1: is a principle. I think I understand what it is and how it works for people, but it's never worked in my own life. Right.
0: So... Taken, taken a, a step from there. No understanding. Well, I'll I'll go back to the beginning. So I started. Ask your your question was um, what getting sober was like. So I went to my first meeting in two thousand and two. Okay, and I would have been twenty two. And I had actually gone to a church that I went to as a kid and talked to the pastor and said, I think I have an issue with drinking, and I don't know what to do about it. And I, to this day, am grateful for his response. He also was, he seemed, it was a Lutheran church. His name was Pastor David Bradford, if he's listening, but I doubt it. But um, I don't think he'd mind me mentioning his name, but he he said There is a member in this church who goes to Alcoholics Anonymous who has given me their name and said that if anybody ever came in here saying something like that, that I could refer them to this person. And so that's what I'm going to do. And so he referred me to a guy named Steve W. And um, again, I'll, I'll be forever grateful for that move because I think some people get the impression that Well, I, I would have thought that the answer, you know, he might've said, well, let's pray about it. Yeah. But he didn't say, let's pray about it. He said, talk to this guy who's an AA.
1: And was that in town here?
0: That was in Knoxville, Knoxville. Tennessee. Knoxville, okay. So I went to my first meeting that, that, uh, that week probably, or maybe two weeks later, sometime in that window. And I remember the meeting very clearly, um, probably the thing that stuck out, struck, me most was that the there was a a levity about the meeting. People had a good sense of humor about it. It wasn't like a bunch of dour old people that looked like they were, you know, half past dead. Right. And it was a room full of people that most of them had a a vibrance. You know, there was they they there there was life there. And that kind of struck me. Because my thinking was To give up, well, first of all, I didn't know that AA recommended that you give up drinking. I don't know if I would have agreed to go. My concept of AA was a bunch of people sitting around complaining about how bad their lives were because they drank. Uh And then giving each other tips on how to navigate said life. Right. So when it became clear to me in that first meeting that abstinence was the order of the day, I quickly decided that it was not for me. Okay and even though i appreciated the the people in the room and the effort they made to make me feel welcome i said thanks but no thanks and it was a year later that i ended up going to treatment um because i didn't wasn't able to stop drinking and things got worse yeah you know that's sort of what they tell you is things get worse
1: where did you get a treatment
0: place called cornerstone in uh a place called Louisville, Tennessee, which is an odd little burg outside of Knoxville. Okay. Um, but I went to a place called Cornerstone, and that was a trip too. In a way, I remember the um, excuse my stomach
1: growling. Is that what that was? That's what that was. Wow, it's that was, was pretty
0: serious. That's a good one. So, um, the I had started seeing a therapist because I was in a relationship with a woman that was very unhealthy and my idea was if I could figure out how to get this relationship on track, then my life would start clicking. Yeah. I started seeing a therapist and he kind of disabused me of that notion (laughs) that it was about the woman. Right. And, and he also conveyed to me that he had been sober for 15 plus years, which is not something I knew about him and didn't even know it was possible. So it kind of piqued my interest a little bit because this was after going to AA and deciding AA was not for me. Okay. And then meeting this therapist and realizing that he was sober. Yeah. And so that kind of piqued my interest a little bit. I, um, had been pulled over in a blackout. Uh, in other words, I sort of came to, I was sitting in a bar the next moment I was being pulled over on the interstate. Okay. And I remember swearing after that night, for some reason, the cop let me off. Um, maybe it's because of my light complexion. (laughs) Yeah. Um, and, uh, so the cop let me off, gave me a reckless driving citation and I swore I'd never do it again. You let you drive home? he let me drive to a friend's house with him following me. Okay. And I mean, I, I was, I was not just buzzed because I had just come out of a blackout. So yeah. I was pretty well gone. And I'll, to this day, I mean, he said, he, I remember it was a very, you know, vivid experience. He said, um, I'm pretty sure if I was to give you a field sobriety test right now, you'd not do so well. And I just kept my mouth shut and nodded. And, um, when he had, when I found somebody, some house close by to go to, a friend of mine, he said, don't, uh, don't go too fast and don't run any stop signs. Wow. okay. And he followed me. So I swore I'd never do it again. Well, two weeks later, I did it again. Mm-hmm. This time I didn't get pulled over, but uh, I did make it home. And my dad, had come, I was living at home at that time, going to college. My dad had come in in the morning and said, um, where are your car keys? And I said, they're in my pocket uh, on the floor over there. Why? You need to move my car. And he said, no, I'm taking your car. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, you can't do that because, you know, I'm making the payments. I pay the insurance. It's my car. You can't take my car. Right. If it was your car, you could take it, but (laughs) you can't take my car. I'm going to call the cops because you're stealing my car and I have somewhere to be. And. So, for whatever reason, I decided that before calling the cops, I would call this therapist because he had said, call anytime. Okay. So, I called the therapist and I said, Doc, I'm thinking about calling the cops because my dad's stealing my car. And the therapist very calmly said, Don't do that. It will not work out well for you. And uh, I said, Well, what do I do? I said, Well, what does he want? I said, Well, he wants me to get help. He said, Okay, well, that might be a good option. So then this is what I describe as sort of my first moment of clarity when it comes to drinking. I said, what happens if I continue to drink? And he said, for a guy like you, it could end up in one of three ways. You could go to jail, you could go to an institution, or you could go to a cemetery.
1: Mm, that's powerful.
0: And without thinking or without any my my follow up question was, well, how long have I got before one of those things happens? Yeah. If he'd have said five years, I would have said, thank you very much. I'll call you in four and a half. Yeah. And we'll get this straightened out. Mm-hmm. He said not long. Mm. And that was it. for For whatever reason, that made a lot of sense to me because I started. I pieced together the incidents. I pieced together. The fact that my blackouts were getting closer together and getting less predictable. Um, I pieced together that there was a definite trend in my drinking and that it was getting worse and my outcomes were getting worse. And that was what I needed to hear in that moment. And And so then I decided, okay, I'll do this treatment thing. So I called the treatment place and they said, well, we can't take you to Monday. It was Friday. I said, well, what the hell am I supposed to do till Monday? They said, go to a meeting.
1: (laughs) The last thing you want to do right?
0: These, these, you know, I've tried that. So I went to treatment. Sorry for the long sort of roundabout there, but that's an important piece of my story because it, it, um, to me, I had to get to a point where I could hear that. Yeah. Cause I think people had probably said things like that before. But not in that way and not to me in that moment. So when I think about what made recovery possible for me, it was that there were people in my life that cared hmm. and that were willing to say things that would not be popular with me. Yeah. Um, because they they cared about me. So that that's a very... Uh, To me, that was a a big piece of my recovery was having somebody in that moment tell me the truth and not just tell me everything was going to be okay. Sure. He basically said things are not going to be okay. And that's what I needed to hear. So I went to treatment, a 28-day inpatient, and probably the best thing I learned out of treatment was that I could go to sleep without drinking. Because to that point... I could maybe make it close to bedtime without a drink, but I would start to get really anxious that I wasn't going to be able to sleep. Yeah. And then I would start to drink. Oh, yeah. And then all bets were off. So there was always that last-minute, last-ditch mechanism in my brain to get me to drink, which was, if you don't, you know, you're not going to be able to sleep, and this is going to be miserable, and you yeah. got to get up tomorrow, and you got shit to do, and you don't want to lay here in bed all night awake. And yeah. You know, so have a nightcap. Well, a nightcap would turn into just a full-on drunk. Yeah. So learning that I could go to sleep without a drink was really important for me. The other thing that was really important for me was how much this program emphasized Alcoholics Anonymous. In some ways, it was like a very expensive AA meeting. Right. Uh, And uh, in hindsight, I wish I could have got it at that first meeting. But, you know, it takes what it takes. About two weeks in, um, I was reading in the book Alcoholics Anonymous. And I remember reading in chapter four, We Agnostics, a line that said, If when you honestly want to, you cannot stop entirely, or if when you take a drink, you have little or no control over the amount you take, then you are probably alcoholic. Hmm. And that was me. That was the thing in the book that I read that described me. I think people in AA will talk about that experience of, you know, it's like someone's reading their mail or, you know, read through the book. But that was the thing for me, that line. it, It so accurately captured my position with respect to alcohol that I had tried to stop. I had tried, I'd honestly wanted to stop and not been able. And then that, that thing about when I take a drink, having little or no control, um, that was important for me that it didn't say, you know, no control. It said little or no control. Right. And that gave me some leeway to think about my experiences with controlled drinking, in air quotes. Mm-hmm. That there were times when I was able to drink three beers. Sure. There were a there were few times, but it was always when the, the effort required to do that required, one, for me to set the intention. Mm-hmm. So I had to think very hard about the night ahead and say, tonight, I'm only going to drink three. And then um, I would burn through three and it would be 530. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Exactly. And I would be with friends who were all still drinking. Yeah. And then the thoughts would come in how come they get to do it? Why can't I do it? You know, what's wrong with me? It should be fine. Um, I'll just have just
1: one four. more. What's four? What's four yeah. versus three? Yeah.
0: But then the trick there was once I had four, I had passed my limit of three, which meant the whole night was a failure. Therefore, might as well
1: go for gold. That's right. Yeah,
0: that was off. I'll try again with this three thing tomorrow. Yep. But tonight it's off because I've already violated my initial principle. So tomorrow's tomorrow's the day where I'm going to quit for good. So I better live it up tonight. Yeah. <laughs> I can't tell you how many nights were my last <laughs> night of drinking, but there <laughs> yeah. were a lot of last nights of drinking that yeah. were, you know, where I said about tying one on for 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 perp- in, in perpetuity. You know, this is going to be the one that that is the night to remember, and then from that from here on out I'm, I am as clean s- as a whistle That's right
1: How old were you when you started drinking
0: I was 15 Okay I had my first I had my first beer and my first uh bit of pot on the same night Okay And I remember the experience like it was yesterday I even remember it better than yesterday cuz I don't remember <laughs> shit about yesterday <laughs> But that's what people say But I I rem- it was very it's very vivid in my mind that evening. Yeah. And I think that's the difference between myself as an alcoholic and people I know who don't claim or don't identify as alcoholics is I can very clearly remember my first night of drinking and I can very clearly remember what it made me feel. And what it made me feel was like I was the best version of myself that I'd ever been. Mm. I felt more confident. I felt funnier i felt smarter i felt more handsome i felt relaxed in my skin yeah like everything that plagued me up to that point you know what can plague a 15 year old but everything that had 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 been riding on me up to that point just got cleaned away and i was the best version of myself and i felt the best i'd ever felt yeah And with my judgment impaired by alcohol, when someone offered me pot, it was a no-brainer. You know? Sure. And uh, I immediately went to my dad the next day and told him what I'd done. Um, And he said, you're going to do what you're going to do. And I don't want to catch you out anywhere doing it. But if you're going to go, if you're going to do that, go somewhere and stay there. You know? So... It'd be easy to so he gave you the green light more or less. Basically. Yeah. But it would be easy to armchair quarterback and say that was the wrong move in the sen- but on the flip side if he'd have come down really hard and said, you know, you're grounded for life and you can't see these people anymore, I mean I might have it might have pushed me even further more quickly. Sure. That and he would have been a complete hypocrite because my dad is to this day a pothead. Yeah. Um and uh that was one of the things that, that that actually sort of, I would, well, I would say that that really colored my opinion about it and, and also sort of gave me a, a different attitude about it. When I was 12 years old, in a moment of eavesdropping on my parents, I discovered that my dad smoked pot and they found out that I was eavesdropping, my mom and my dad. And my mom was basically ragging my dad about smoking pot. Mm-hmm. Saying, why are you doing it? You could risk going to jail. We we depend on you. And that's some pretty heavy shit for a twelve year old. Yeah. To be like, okay, well, dad could go to jail. And plus, by you know, that was in uh would have been ninety-two or ninety-three, and that was right in the height of the 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 DARE program. Where sure. that was a very active program in schools. So I had been inundated with this information about how drugs were bad. And the people that did drugs were criminals and that it was the path to ruin. Like there was one thing in the world that you could do that would fuck everything up. And that was drugs. Yeah. And so when I found out my dad did drugs.
1: Drugs.
0: It was like, oh my God. You know, and they found out and my dad said, you can never tell anyone about this. I could go to jail. So it was, this then it became this secret. It's heavy. You know. Yeah. And I don't, I, I don't recall carrying it. Um, you know, but I think on some level I kind of buried it. I just very strongly told myself I can never utter a word of this. And it be, so I became this bearer of this, this secret, um, that my dad had this secret life. Yeah. You know? And then all the stuff that goes along with that, well, do, do his friends know? I mean, they can't know what a monster he is.
1: Or do his friends do it right, too? Do his friends
0: do it too? Yeah. Are they all, you know, these addicts? Yeah. And, uh, cause that's, that's how they painted drugs. You know, drugs were bad. People who did drugs were criminals. End of story. Yeah. End of story. And if you did drugs, you were going to die. <laughs> yeah. That's right. So I would
1: love to see some statistics about the effectiveness of the DARE program.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I wonder, um, yeah, that'd be interesting. I mean,
1: because all it ever did for me was make me really curious.
0: Yeah. I mean, I'm like, oh shit,
1: that's what that looks like. That's right. That's pretty cool looking.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, and then they, you know, they, at some point, the problem, a big problem with that approach is that if you do, you know, the other thing that that did for me. So on the flip side of like believing, like uh, hearing this and thinking, oh, my dad's a big criminal and he's a drug, druggie. On the flip side of that, I knew that was wrong. Like mm. I knew he wasn't you could a criminal see through that. And so immediately it exploded the bullshit. Yeah. So it did those two things simultaneously, which is confusing. But on the one hand, it was like, I had, I, I thought these things about my dad and was very worried about him going to jail on the flip side. It was like, well, you know, he's not a bad person. Right. You know, he's not, he's not a villain. Mm-hmm. He's not this cartoon character, you know, in the trench coat trying to sell kids drugs on the corner. Yeah.
1: Under a bridge. My dad. Bill. Right. Yeah.
0: You know, so, it exploded the bullshit. Yeah. You know. So, yeah, the, the D.A.R.E. program to me was, is a sort of a a failed experiment. Um,
1: They've totally rebranded. I, I didn't know this up until last year, but now they focus on primarily suicide. Wow. They've kept the same name, D.A.R.E., but
0: mm-hmm. I think they abandoned the
1: whole drugs are
0: bad thing. Wow. Yeah. That's interesting. Interesting how uh, acronyms get repurposed and meanings washed away yeah um
1: so i'm um, what i'm curious about is because i can i can totally relate i was probably about 12 years old too i was watching tv and the main character found some porno mags under his dad's bed so what do i do go and look under my dad's bed all i found was some pot and the way you described it is exactly how I remember feeling. I had this oh shit moment of like, I think I need to wrap my dad out. I think I need to tell somebody right. about this. Um, and I didn't tell a soul. I just kind of sat with it and uh, processed it as much as a 12-year-old can. But I'm curious for, for you, it sounds like it kind of had a, a layered effect on you. And it was just a few years later that you tried it for the first time. Were you thinking about that moment? Were you thinking about what your parents would think if they found out?
0: I think consciously, you know, the next day when I went to tell him, I was armed a little bit with the knowledge that he smoked pot. Yeah. So in a way... I was prepared for a fight about him being a hypocrite because that's one of the the best fights you can have as a teenager with your parents. Oh yeah, if you have that hypocrite. in your back
1: pocket. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
0: So um, I don't know how you feel about like cussing on this podcast. Oh no, okay. cuss away. Okay, so, but yeah, that's one of the that's one of the the biggest uh, the biggest bombs you can have in your arsenal for your yeah. parents as you're a hip, hypocrite. So I kind of had a, a veil of protection in my mind and going to confess. So that did factor in when he came back with such a permissive attitude, it didn't shock me. Um, it, it just sort of made sense. And I was like, well, of course he would say that right? because, you know, so then that began sort of an experimental period where that year of being um, 15 and, you know, I didn't know how to roll a joint you know I would occasionally happen on some pot or some beer it would be a 40 ounce and but it was you know it was periodic episodic yeah nothing you know it didn't become a habit well and I at the risk of just bloviating on your podcast um I will continue please interrupt me feel free to interrupt me so the the following year and this is i'm going to say this and and we'll breeze past it um when i was a kid when i was 6 years old my family upped and moved to saudi arabia for 4 years oh wow and then came back to the states so that had a little bit you know that obviously had some influences but i'll skip past the childhood piece and go to 16 when my parents decided to go back to saudi arabia and it you know my dad's not in the military but they made good money over there and Things weren't necessarily working out in the States and there were some other factors. So they're like, let's go back. So we went back to Saudi Arabia when I was 16. My brother and I, being the very clever young boys we were, um, we found out that my parents, along with most of the people that were expats living in Saudi Westerners, were making their own alcohol. Mm. Alcohol is illegal in Saudi Arabia. It's a Muslim country. Alcohol is strictly forbidden. It's haram. So when we found out that they were making alcohol, we approached them and said, look, over here, it's just as illegal for you to drink as it is for us to drink. <laughs> so what's the deal? <laughs> and my parents mulled it over and they took the European approach, which was, OK, well, well, we'll teach you how to drink. Well, that quickly devolved into everyone getting drunk together. Mm. And so I started getting rip roaring drunk with my parents around the age of sixteen. Oh yeah. And and that shaped me in in numerous ways. A lot a lot of things really took a left turn at that point. Things that I wouldn't realize until sometimes you know over a decade later. Sure. That that was the moment where I kind of lost my parents. They mm. became peers. Yeah. And um, you know that's. Not, not to say that I, you know, they're still alive and I love them yep. and I don't, you know, I don't resent them in any way. They were, you know, young people having kids, they were doing the best they could. I, I fully believe that. And I fully believe they did what they did out of love. Uh, that said they were kids having kids. Yeah. And uh, that was a the decision they made. And it just so happens that that decision didn't play well with my neurology. Yeah. So, um, you know, had I had a different brain, it could have worked out just fine. I, I think there's parents that drink with their teenage kids that say you can have a beer, and for whatever reason, you know the teenage kids take them up on it twice a year. Yep, and have a beer and have a laugh, and that's it.
1: But that's not the way it went down for you.
0: No. Yeah. No, it became it became pretty clear very early that they like to drink. And, uh, we had some neighbors that were from England that also liked to drink and England is a little more permissive when it comes to alcohol. Sure. So that was a a factor in that decision too, I think. And so, yeah, that began some serious drinking.
1: Neither here nor there, but I can't imagine homemade booze was any good. You'd
0: be surprised. Really? Be surprised. And here's, here was the trick. Um, For all of you kids listening at home. (laughs) Here's how to make booze in your bathtub. It's very easy. Actually, you get a 30-gallon trash can. Yep. And then you buy cases of non-alcoholic beer. Okay. And then you pour X amount of sugar and X amount of yeast. Stir occasionally for two weeks. Bottle after two weeks. And then let the sediment sort of sink to the bottom. And then you have some very potent alcoholic beer. Oh, man. Yeah. Easy. That's clever. That is clever. Easy. Um, powerful. You had to cut it with more non-alcoholic beer if you wanted it to be, you know, sort of like a normal beer. Right. (laughs) But sometimes we skip that step. (laughs) But that was, you know, so that, that really, um, and then when we were 17, so after a year of that, we moved back to the States and in high school, um, we, we convinced them to let us live with a friend of ours who we had known during the time that we were here, you know, in between the first stay in Saudi Arabia in the second stay. Okay. We'd made some good friends and we'd convinced my parents, my brother and I convinced my parents to, uh, not to forget my sister. Hello, Bonnie, you're out there. Um, <laughs> she stayed there. She was three years younger than we were, but, um, stayed in Saudi, in Saudi, Arabia? Saudi Arabia with my parents. Okay. Uh, but we decided, you know, we begged and pleaded to let them come back. Let, let us come back and finish our senior year in the high school where we started. And sure. They agreed to that. Um, and that's where it was strange because my during that year, my pot use overtook my drinking. Mm. And that sort of led me to understand that it was not about the substance. It was about ease of access. Sure. And because once I turned 21, it was easier to get alcohol than it was to get pot. And so then my drinking sort of over overtook my pot use. Yeah. But when you're underage, illicit substances are easier to get. Cause you don't have to have a government issued ID you exactly. just have to know somebody. Exactly. So that's when my pot use really took off and I did a lot of LSD and um, a lot of pills and anything I could get my hands on when I was a senior in high school. Yeah. And uh loved LSD still to this day. I'm grateful for those experiences. I mean, that's might be controversial in some circles, but um
1: I mean, you you can't get those experiences otherwise. Yeah. I
0: mean, yeah. I mean, it, it Yeah. I mean, I don't recommend young people, old people. You don't have to do it, Um, but I don't regret it. I'm happy I made it out alive, but I don't regret it. Yeah. Because it it definitely lent itself to some exploration into territory that I don't think I I would have explored Mm -hmm. otherwise. And I'm not talking about, you know, another guy's butthole. I'm talking about, (laughs) you know which also did happen. which also did happen but that's a different story um so what yeah but that um drugs became a big part of my my self-concept um my my leisure time um did it become your identity
1: amongst no, your friend group you know or?
0: oddly um we we were in a strange group because we weren't as cool as the kids who did like the real drugs. Yeah, you know, and the kids who were selling the drugs. Those were the those were those kids. Mm-hmm. And then we obviously weren't jocks. We just never played sports. Wasn't into that. Yep. Yeah. Um, and we weren't nerds in the sense that we did drugs. <laughs> so we kind of you know sort of were this weird middle ground where we weren't necessarily fully incorporated into any. Group And I, I kind of liked it that way. I never much. Being on the fringe. Yeah. I, I kind of always, that was, that's always been sort of part of my, my ego likes that. Yeah. You know, whether or not it's true, my ego likes to tell me I'm on the fringe. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm probably just, you know, plain vanilla. Yeah. But my ego wants me to think I'm, I'm special. Yep. And when, when, you know, when you, when you feel somewhat ostracized from every group, in some ways, that makes you feel special. It did me. Yeah. You know, I think some people could feel, you know, rejection where where some people felt rejection. I felt, you know, that feeling of being unique. Yeah. And that was something that I sort of clung to. Mm. Yeah. So.
1: So it, it's your senior year at this point, you've experimented with all these different drugs and you said it's when you turned twenty one that your drinking really kind of overtook again. Yeah. How how quick did that turn into a point where you realized there was no turning back?
0: Well, that you know, it's it's odd because I think that if anybody objectively uh, looking at my life, would could have picked a much earlier point. And in truth, when I was nineteen. I, I and I still have this journal entry. I, I I've done journals, you know. I am the kind of person that will do a journal for two weeks and then quit for years. And yeah. Then, and then say I'm going to start journaling. Yeah, I'm the same <laughs> way. Yeah. But I, luckily, I've kept on to those. I've I've kept hold of those. And so when I was 19, I wrote in a journal when I was drunk, uh, because I can judge by the scrawl. Yeah. Uh, I wrote I might have a problem with drinking. Interesting. Dot dot dot. Nah. <laughs> and uh, I said, I you know everybody at this age, it's just an age thing. I'll quit when I get older. I remember writing that. Mm-hmm. So objectively, it got it got bad enough to where there was a part of myself that said this could be a problem. Yeah, but I just stuffed it. But one of the things about my drinking towards the end is, or even the last couple of years, is I would get very. um I would engage in in bizarre self injurious behavior in the sense that it wasn't it was atypical. Like I would I would have bouts of punching myself in the face when I would mm-hmm. get really drunk. Yeah. And smashing my head into things. And that became sort of a a hallmark of a, you know, a really bad night. Yeah. And So, uh, you know, again, if somebody would have seen me doing that, they might say, well, that's a guy who needs to quit drinking. (laughs) Right. Um, Did you ever do
1: any serious damage? You ever break a nose or anything?
0: No, I never did. I did bust out my brother's rear windshield of his car with my head uh, on one occasion from the outside. His car was parked. Wow. Uh, And I went over to, uh, I think I went over to prove a point and ended up, (laughs) you know, breaking out his windshield. But, um, you know, nothing, no, no lasting damage, uh, but you know, I haven't punched myself in the face since I quit drinking.
1: That's a good uh, you thing know,
0: that's there's a strong correlation there. I don't know if you'd say it's causal effect, you know, but yeah, strong corollary. So you know, to answer the question, it I was like a frog in the pot of water that's slowly heating up. Sure, you've heard that, I yep, mean, where if if you incrementally increase the temperature slowly enough, eventually the frog will boil and die because it acclimates to each new level of, of heat past the point where it's, it can sustain life. And I think that's very similar to what my trajectory was had there not been some sort of intervention.
1: That's really interesting. Yeah. Cause when, when you put it that way, I feel like my experience was more jumping into the pot of boiling water. Okay. So it's really interesting to hear from, from the other side Um, while it's going on, you may have some awareness that this isn't quite right, but it just, because of its incremental increase, it's probably really easy to just chalk it up to, Oh, this is normal. This is what people go through.
0: That. And, and I think that, you know, at that time, um, if, if you were to, um, it's hard to explain, I'm going to try and do it in audio format and see if it, see if it works. So the, the way that my drinking was, it was so, sort of like if you took a, a line, if you took a pencil and put it on a piece of paper and started drawing a, a, a line from left to right that slanted slightly downward. Okay. So this land is very gradual. You, you, you keep your finger, you keep your pencil moving along that paper very slowly. And eventually you're going to get a downward slope on yeah. that line. For me, that was the overall trajectory of my drinking. It was very gradual. But then there would be these very sharp dips, which would be, you know, episodes of driving in a blackout or yeah. getting extremely drunk and punching myself in the face or doing something, you know, um, urinating at old women in parking lots. You know, things that were not characteristic of the person I wanted to be. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and it it represented these extreme sort of bottoming out, Mm -hmm. but then I would quickly recover to back to baseline, which wasn't great. Um, but was, uh, it was more that gradual sort of decline.
1: Did you find that the dips would get lower and lower over time?
0: The, the, the feature that I think I noticed more was that they were getting closer together in time yeah so the the length between the first blackout and the second blackout was probably a year the length between the second and the third might have been six months yeah I, I don't know if it was as as linear as that but it was you know the 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 length between these dips was getting shorter and shorter that was something that I noticed. You know, pretty quickly when I went to treatment. You know, looking back at the last year before treatment, it was like, oh wow. You know, that happened a year ago, and then this happened, and this happened. But there was a whole string of years where none of that shit happened. Right. You know.
1: Yeah, blackouts are really interesting to me because, as much as I drank, it just—it's not in my chemistry. It's just I never blacked out. Yeah. And I would have moments, maybe where I browned out, if you will, and there would be some nights that were spottier than others, but. I honestly thought for a long time that people were bullshitting when they said they blacked out. I'm like, yeah, how how convenient. You don't remember fucking pissing right. in my living room. Yeah, <laughs> but, um, you know, it was it was that, that. For a long time, I was able to skirt by thinking there's no way I can be an alcoholic. Yeah, I don't black out. Um, I remember everything when I wake up, even though I was throwing up all over the place the night before. And
0: you can always compare yourself out. Yeah. You can always find someone who's worse off than you. Sure. And if that's your, if that's your angle, you will always find that person or that, that idea.
1: But nowhere in the big book does it say you're only an alcoholic if you black out. Right. But that's what I wanted to hold on to.
0: Yeah. That, and, you know, and that's where I go back to that, you know, reading that line in the treatment center about that, that, that vague, somewhat vague description, but, but very, it was vague, but it also was very descriptive. You know, it was vague. It was, I don't want to say vague. It was, it was broad. You know, the idea that if you ever wanted to stop and you couldn't, or if mm. you, if you have little or no control over the amount you take, that's its specific. So it's not vague, but it's very broad. Right. There, there are a lot of, uh, there was room for me in that description, you know, yeah. plenty of room for me in that description that, that felt exactly accurate. Yeah. Um. So, yeah. And I, uh, the other, the other, another really interesting, uh, before, and I we probably want to move on from, from this chapter, but, um, right right, you're driving. So I'll just, no, man, this is yeah, but another, it, uh, ride. another interesting thing about that. Thinking back on it is actually the, the weeks preceding my last drunk. Well, I won't say my last drunk cause I did relapse after that. Once, but the weeks preceding me going to treatment, I was in a, I was in college and I was in a wellness class, um, studying recreation therapy Okay. and, um, which, you know, when I got in the major, I was like, well, I do that already. (laughs) (laughs) So joke among recreation therapists. (laughs) So, um, I was in a wellness class and the whole idea behind taking the wellness classes, basically what we say in, in AA is you can't transmit what you haven't got. So. The idea was that you, as a professional, had to be aware of your own wellness so that you could be an effective therapist. Sure. Um, And so there came a point in the semester where we had to select a personal growth project. Okay. And my project was to stop drinking. Interesting. I said, this is going to be my project. I'm going to go for two weeks without drinking. And, uh, you know, chart it and all that stuff for the project, for school. So that was, uh, you know, college classes are like a Monday, Wednesday, Friday type thing. So that might have been a Monday. And then I think Friday rolled around or Wednesday rolled around, whatever day rolled around. And um, we were in the class and he said, make sure that, you know, in order to do this, uh, in order to get the right data, you need to know your baseline. Okay. Uh, so, you know, whatever behavior you're trying to change, you want to get baseline data so that you can see the progress you've made. And I thought, baseline. <laughs> and so, odd, you know, in a f- humorously, my baseline was getting pulled over in a blackout.
1: It's a pretty good baseline. Yeah.
0: So, um, you know that that was like, I look back at that as a, sort of a cosmic joke, you know. Like yeah. When I when I set out to, to get my drinking baseline, that's what I got. You know, so baseline for me was not good. Yeah. Did you follow through with the project? Oh no. Yeah. No, I ended up. I mean, I dropped out of school to go to treatment. Yeah. Because I I knew I was fucked. You know. And that began, you know, the the journey in uh, AA. Again, you know, not I'm not the standard bearer by any means. I don't know if there is one, um, but that's what began the the journey in AA, and that's basically what set my life on a path that has, you know, meant everything. Yeah. Everything has evolved from that, and you know, to some extent, I could say it, that, that everything evolved from those those experience the the, the the negative experiences too. Sure. And that's how I find you know when 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 in in the book Alcoholics Anonymous, there's a line that says, uh, "We will neither regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it." What that means to me is that you know, just like I said with uh, you know my experiences with LSD. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't think, oh, fuck, you know, that was a big mistake. You know, I think it happened and I learned some shit and I can say that about every experience I've had, uh, for the most part, maybe cumulatively. I mean, I'm sure there was some drunks I didn't learn anything from, Yeah. <laughs> but, I, 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 as a whole, um, you know,
1: it, it, it took me a while to realize that. I found when I first got sober, all I wanted to do was shut the door on it. I wanted to forget it. I wanted the people around me to forget that it happened. Um, I felt like there was no good that I could come out of analyzing the time that I spent drinking and drugging. But I think, I think the reason they really... They really promote that idea is because that's the stuff that is relatable. That's the stuff that can help people. To anybody who's listening to this, they may not relate to what your life is now in recovery, but when you can share what it was like being pulled over in a blackout or getting high for your first time at 15, like that's where people can connect the dots and understand what it was like for you and relate it to what their experience has been. Right, right. And I think that's where a lot of the power lies. And that's what I'm starting to find in my own recovery and in finding my own voice. It's just, it's really hard to own up to some of that stuff yeah. because it's not pretty. I mean, on the surface, it's really not. Losing control in that way is not graceful by any stretch of the imagination, you know?
0: Right. Yeah. And it's, it's uh I think that's one of the reasons why, you know, we approach some of the, the Work that we do, with the attitude of trying to understand the feeling of shame, and how that's sort of a blockage to the value that can be that can be derived from sort of mining those experiences. Yeah. Um, because the the shame tells you not to look at it. You know, it tells you that's you know that's hideous, and you no no one should hear about this. The fact that you did it is you know you're it's awful. Yeah. Um, and it, you know if you sort of give into that that feeling, which is understandable, um, you know you you continue to sort of stuff it. Uh, whereas I think I feel encouraged to take a more objective view of it and just say. I was a human doing human shit Hmm. and here's the, here's the ups and downs of it.
1: And, and it's interesting like to think back to something you said before that I want to pull on. Why would you not have done it? If the first time you did it, it seemed that everything just clicked for the first time in your life. And that's something that I definitely experienced. And I've heard from a lot of other alcoholics and addicts that, their life didn't make sense until they found alcohol or they found whatever their drug of choice might've been and to feel so at odds for so long. And then finally you find this thing that makes it all go away. I mean, why would you not rely on that thing?
0: And that's that, that brings us to something that I, you know, I, I don't have any scientific proof of this, although I think it could be borne out if one were to delve deeper than I have done. I think that uh, the effect of alcohol on alcoholics is fundamentally different than the effect of alcohol on non-alcoholics. I think that if drinking did for a non-alcoholic person what it did for me, they wouldn't be able to stop either. Mm. I think that the the feeling that I get when drinking alcohol is different, fundamentally different than the feeling that someone who doesn't have alcoholism gets. Yeah. I think it it it's something about the neurology, it's something, you know, maybe that there's that piece to it, there's the chemistry of it, there's the um maybe the spiritual piece of it too, you know, like where where it interacts with with my concept of self and my concept of you know, but all of that it I think it impacts me in a way that's much more strong, you know. Like people have variances in their sense of smell. Yeah. You know, some people smell things uh, very intensely and some people don't the same, same object presented to two people and one person might be repelled by it. And the other person might love it or the, you know, and everything in between on that sort of spectrum, you might have someone who, you know, is able to smell it very strongly. And then someone who doesn't, Yeah, you know, same with seeing color, you know, some you, there's colorblind and there's not colorblind, but then there might be shades in between, you know, we don't really know, Sure, but I think that, you know, alcohol for me does something different than it does for people that, that aren't alcoholic.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I can I can definitely relate to that. And I think the best explanation I've heard of it is sugar to a diabetic versus a non-diabetic. Something seemingly, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Innocuous. Innocuous. Very good. Um, innocuous to one person could be deadly to another. And, you know, in the book Alcoholics Anonymous, they call it an allergy in multiple spots. And at first I was pretty resistant to that idea. I think I took it a little too literally. Yeah. Um, but what, what this makes me think of, you know, is there are people in my life that, you know, back in my drinking and in, in using days and even now, they were the people that I pointed at and said, oh man, that's a fucking alcoholic right there. Like they have a problem and I'm worried about them. Maybe I talked to them about it. Maybe I didn't. But, um, those are people that have balanced out over the years. And it makes me wonder the difference between like the fundamental difference between someone who's an alcoholic and someone who maybe is a problem drinker. Yeah. Or someone who just likes to party too much. Yeah it's, there's a fine line, but there's definitely a difference because that person who likes to party too much or maybe has a problem once a month can put it down. They don't, they don't think about it the way I thought about it. Right. They're not starting one drink thinking about their next two, you know, it's just, what are your thoughts on that? How do you think, how do you think that differs there?
0: Well, I, there's a couple of factors at play that I think about. Um, You know, one is every person has a capacity for, everyone has a different tolerance for pain. Everyone has a different capacity for um, joy and misery. Um, You know, maybe we all fall sort of in a, statistical mean somewhere, but I think there are differences there. And so I think for some people like myself, I don't attribute my getting sober at the age of 22 to any virtue. I attribute it to the fact that I don't do pain very well. And I recognized that I was, that I was suffering uh, sure. on some level. Yeah. And so I said, you know, fuck this. This is dumb. This hurts. I'm not going to keep doing this. Um,
1: and I'm sure a lot of people have said to you how amazing that is that you got sober at such a young age. Yeah, yeah. It and doesn't it doesn't feel like that to no.
0: you? No, no. It just feels like I I couldn't you know I didn't have the stomach for it. Yeah. You know I, I just I I recognized I was fortunate and, and the intervention that I got and and you know factors beyond human understanding, um, of which there are many. But you know the idea for me is that I was. I was hurting, and and that that hurting was very skillfully by the people around me was skillfully coupled with my drinking and using. Yeah, um, in, in a way that made sense to me that if I can subtract this element from my life, that maybe this hurting will stop. Hmm. So, you know. And I, I think some people, so there's that. There's people's capacity for pain. Yeah. I think that's one thing that, that can, you know, maybe track on to how long people drink. Um, I think there's also the influence. You know, I I had some uh, advantages being, uh, you know, from a middle class family where I was able to get therapy. Sure. You know, so that was an advantage I had that a lot of people don't have. Um, I had uh, community members that were willing to, to talk to me. You know, that guy, the pastor at the church and the guy in AA, you know, people didn't think twice about helping me when I asked. Yeah. And that's not everybody's experience. You know, so there's some advantages that come along with the person I am, you know, again, for things that I didn't choose. You know, my, my uh, socioeconomic class, um, the color of my skin, the, you know, my uh, things like intellect and, and social ability. Yeah. Um physical I mean all these things about me that are are could be seen as advantages in this life that I'm grateful for. Sure. Put me in a position to where a lot of the things that were were around me made sense and sort of pointed in this direction of quitting drinking. Um so I mean, it's so it's it's so layered you know what determines when a person quits drinking and when a person doesn't. Now, the book so You can go really deep in the weeds on that, which I just did.
1: Let's go deeper.
0: (laughs) We're going to go shallower. Okay. The book, Alcoholics Anonymous, the distinction it makes between hard drinkers and alcoholics, and this is going to blow you away, the difference between uh, a hard drinker and an alcoholic is that the hard drinker stops when circumstances get to a point where it's evident that they need to stop. Okay. That's the difference. Okay. The alcoholic is completely unable to stop no matter what, what, uh, what you throw at him without, you know, according to Alcoholics Anonymous, without this intervention that includes uh, a spiritual treatment. Sure. And, you know, total abstinence. Yeah, And I, I realize I've just lost like 90% of your listeners there. Oh, but. they're not, they've, <laughs> we, they've been we lost gone. them when they've been gone. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, no, the spiritual angle, um, is is what's required, I think, um, or or at least the idea that the power has to come from somewhere else. Yeah, that that whole idea and that that's so, you know, the doctor's opinion has really become even more powerful to me over the years as I read it. It's such an important framework for understanding the program. Um, that's that that's a refers to a, a, a opening. Chapter of the book Alcoholics Anonymous, the doctor's opinion. Yep. Um, it is such an important framework for understanding everything that go- comes after it, and a big piece of it is that, you know, what's required is what they call a psychic change. And, you know, on one le- level you could say that's you know well that sounds like really impossible mumbo jumbo. On another level, it's like you know, changing your mind. And, um, but it's not something that I could do myself and it's not something that, um, anybody could do for me. I had to be basically introduced to the concept of a personal higher power, um, and then taught how to access that power in a way that made sense to me so that I could make it through the roughest moments you know the moments in the beginning where you're sort of holding on by your fingernails yeah that's where that stuff that's where that's where that stuff sort of makes or breaks the sobriety i think there are those there are a few i think in my experience a few critical moments in early sobriety where like it says in the book alcoholics anonymous there there's nothing between you and the drink it's only your higher power sure um and Each one of those experiences is like doing a rep with weights, you know? Yeah. And and so you have to start somewhere, but the more you do it, the stronger you get and the easier it is.
1: And the more powerful it becomes. Right.
0: And it's easier to do it next time and so forth.
1: So for me, maybe for those who are less familiar with Alcoholics Anonymous, um, just because I know before I was in the program, um, the idea of a higher power is exactly what kept me away. This idea that I was going to have to let God into my life, I was going to have to fundamentally change what my beliefs are, um, that wasn't going to work for me. Even though I knew I needed help, I knew I had a problem, um, this was probably three and a half, four years before I ever finally decided to come to Alcoholics Anonymous and give it a shot. Um, And I think that's a limiting factor for a lot of people. Could could you maybe speak to what that higher power has looked like in your life and what it looked like when you first started?
0: Yeah, and and I think, you know, one of the best things about that book or or you know, I won't say the best things, there's lots of things about it. But something about that book that's really interesting is that if you look at the after the the first around 164 pages which is sort of the meat and potatoes of of this is how you do this. Yep. Plus a little bit of bullshit misogyny <laughs> that we won't get into. But <clears throat> you got to look past some of that. Um there goes the other 10% of your listeners. But uh <laughs> the um in, in honest in honesty there are parts about the book that's very problematic from a modern perspective. That said there's a lot of good shit in there. Don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. Yeah. After that there are stories, personal stories that they collected from people who got sober using the methods described in the in the first pages. Every one of those stories has in it the description of that person's journey towards a higher power, and that's where you know if you think about um, in in there's a section in the book called How It Works, and at the end of that little section um, says our description of the alcoholic the chapter of the agnostic and our personal adventures before and after before and after, I think, you know, refers to the text. So our personal adventures before this point in the text and after this point in the text uh, being the stories,
1: I wouldn't have interpreted, that um,
0: way. make clear three pertinent ideas. Mm-hmm. And, and so you look at those three pertinent ideas that, um, we were powerless over alcohol. Their lives had become unmanageable that no, probably, probably, That's the word it uses. Probably no human power could have relieved our alcoholism and that God could and would if he ever saw it. All three of those elements are present in every one of those stories Mm. in some way. So it's interesting to sort of look at them through that lens. Say, how is this person addressing A, B, and C of that part of how it works? So um, back to you know sort of my personal experience, I have gone, I think, the... Well, I don't, my experience is, is is like everyone else's, my experience, but I started AA with what I felt like was a more clearly defined concept of, of God. Um, I would have uh, proclaimed to be a Christian, mm-hmm. um, and I had sought thought, you know, in some ways, in some fundamental ways, I hadn't, but in some ways I'd kind of you know, worked that out for myself. Sure. I had these sort of core tenets that I believed. Um, as I've been in Alcoholics Anonymous, I've sort of moved away from that. Um, so that's not to scare any Christians. You can still be Christian. Um, <laughs> there, there are plenty of you. Um, but, uh, and on some days I, you know, I'm, I'm an, I would say I'm a Christian some days. But I, you know, not so sure anymore. Yeah. And it more it doesn't have to do with so much with um, you know, that I don't believe some of the tenets that I once believed. It's that I've started to get a different understanding of how that higher power worked for me. And then looking at how it works for other people has expanded my view on on what's possible and what works in the sense that, you know, if any one religious belief were true, let's say Christianity, Mm -hmm. you know, then it would follow. It might, it might follow that praying to any other God would be ineffective. Right. Uh, That's not what I see. That's not what I hear from the stories that people tell. In mm-hmm. Alcoholics Anonymous, um, what I hear in those stories is people that pray. Some of them don't even pray to a god; they just pray. Um, people pray to different gods. People pray to no god. People pray as an act of sort of meditation. Um, it's effective. It's effective. Yeah, and so it's so. So I think that, and again, I don't represent. Anybody but myself. But my thoughts on the matter, uh, because you asked. It's it's all about ego deflation. It's about my relationship with my concept of myself. Over time, when I adopt the attitude that there is something in the universe that's greater than me, my role in the universe shrinks just a little bit Mm -hmm. with every day of believing that. And as my role as master of the universe begins to shrink, things start to make more sense. Things that used to not make sense, like how could you possibly fucking be that way when I know you ought to be this way? right? Uh, Things like that start to make more sense when my role as master of the universe diminishes. So just the simple belief that I'm not master of the universe is all that's needed to get started, I think um it was you know i think that's the kernel that that has to be present i have to be willing to believe that i am not it yeah and from there i think there's a, a whole spring of of possible experiences and avenues to be explored and personal relationships with higher powers that can be developed or personal relationships with with oneself that are more real yeah that are that are actually more objective You know, Bill W., the co-founder of Alcoholics Anonymous, calls it being right-sized.
1: Yeah, I like that. I like that term a lot. Yeah, that's a great point. And it makes me think about, and this is something I think about quite often, I think the way that the book is written and the words that are chosen are very intentional. And there are some places in the book where the word God is used, but more frequently, I've noticed the term higher power be used. And that's something that's a little bit easier for me to wrap my head around. I was actually just at a meeting tonight. Um, Well, it was in my living room on a Zoom meeting, which is another thing we could probably talk about. Um, And the topic was step two. Came to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity. And for a lot of people who are just getting started out, that higher power could be the room itself and the people in it. Um, you know, like my sponsor first kind of explained it to me like, I mean, I'm going to get his analogy all fucked up, but it had to do with a car and the battery in it. You know, if I had to power that car, there's no way I could even move it. But with there being a battery, an engine all these components that work together, that's a power greater than me. And I'm like, yeah, I mean, I guess at its most literal sense. Absolutely. So I think where I got hung up on God, higher power started to resonate more. Yeah. And I, and I think I was just going to say, in, in in one of those three tenets that you brought up before, they do use the word God and they say, God could and would if he were sought. That's always really resonated with me because it doesn't say if you find God, if you pray to God every day, if you act in God's will, it just talks about seeking. Mm. So I think that's, it's just uh, like you said, that process of ego deflation and right-sizing yourself. That's part of that journey that helps you seek out this higher power.
0: Sure. And I mean, on, on a fundamental level, I mean, if, if a person is seeking something, It's something they either don't have or want more of. Yeah. So, you know, the attitude is that you of yourself do not have what it takes. You, Mm. in and of yourself, do not have what it takes to stop drinking. So you have to find something. You might have some of what it is. Yeah. You know, you might have a lot of what it is. But there's something else. (laughs) And that's the seeking part. Yeah. The other way I think about it, you know, that's a good analogy with the car. The other way I think about it that's uh, worked for me is, you know, I think about if I were to write a list, uh, and the title of the list would be Things That Will Overcome John's Alcoholism. Mm -hmm. I could number that list, and next to number one, I'll write the word John, and then I'll cross it out yeah because that's not the, that's not one of the things. That's pretty much all I need to know because now I could give up there and say I'm fucked um, but the 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 urge to live if present um, and in some cases it's not and that's a sad sort of different story. but if the urge to live is present, the urge to persevere is present and I've eliminated myself as the sole option then by necessity, there will have to be some seeking or, you know, I've got to put other things on that fucking list. Yeah. Whatever it is. It's just, you know, it's not me. I know that. So let, that's a good place to start.
1: Well, you know, it's, that, that brings me to something that's kind of like, it bothered me for a long time now. There are people in my life who really don't, Agree with the concept of addiction and alcoholism as it's currently accepted, and they believe that the only thing standing in someone's way is their willpower or lack thereof. What would you say to someone who has that belief?
0: I will share with them, I would share with them something that was told to me in treatment that still sticks with me because it's so vivid. Uh, I would tell that person to drink a bottle of X-Lax and try to shit just a little bit. (laughs) I like that a lot. (laughs) Because that's that's the experience. Yeah. You know, you you might be able to strain yourself and not completely explode, but it's going to be messy and there's going to be shit everywhere. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's not a matter of willpower, I don't think. I think very little is, you know, there's a, um, this, this will, this will, uh, precipitate us into a seething cauldron of debate. There's certain, <laughs> there's certain, uh, phrases from the book that stick with you over time, uh, in their antiquated way. That's one of them. Um, rebellion dogs, their every step. That's another nice little quote, but, hmm. um, Actually had a friend that wanted to start a band called Rebellion Dogs. Oh so uh kind of like that. Yeah. The uh um the the deal with, with willpower, I think, is and this is this is I'm speaking way, way above my my uh class here, if we were talking punching. Um, but I've been very um enamored of a scientist named robert sapolsky who wrote a book called behave okay and the subtitle is the the behavior of humans at our best and worst and he is a neuroendocrinologist and a primatologist and he goes into great detail his his approach to behavior to describe the, the the sum total of human behavior is to start zoomed very close in and in, in terms of time and space, and then zoom out. So, the f- closest you get in time and space is neurons. So, he describes how neurons work, and then he describes how hormones work because that's a little bit further out. Yeah. And then you think about, um, you know, then you think about time like what's going on with those things an hour before behavior occurs? What's going on with those things a day before a behavior occurs? Okay, now what's going on with those things a thousand years before those things occur? That led to those things being in that particular configuration. And then, you know, what's going on in the context of the society where this person lives? What's, you know, so you, you look at the sum total of all of these factors. Right. And it starts to paint a picture of an idea that there's a lot of human behavior that we don't understand, that we attribute to our own decision making that, in fact, is more likely a manifestation of a particular neurology or chemistry or or combi- most likely a combination of those factors sure. with environment and, um you know, diet, everything. And so what you start to see is if you were to imagine a little space in your brain with a little guy pulling levers, you know, let's... Let's move here. Let's go here. Let's pick up this drink. Let's put this drink down. If you imagine that little space in your brain with that little guy pulling levers, the space for him to operate, the more we understand about these things in science, the space for that guy to operate is shrinking. Mm. The places where he's actually pulling levers and making these decisions is actually a lot fewer than we think. And... You know that that you can get into the whole thing about free will, and we won't we won't go there. We won't go right. full Sam Harris on it, but yeah. um, you know the but the idea behind that I think is very sound. Um, not that I'm the judge of such things, but it makes absolute logical sense that that is the case. And it then follows that there would be a number of different factors that would play into a person's propensity towards alcoholism that are much more than a matter of because I choose to. Sure. And that's what the argument of willpower comes down to. You know, boil off all the bullshit and what those people are saying is that you choose to or you choose not to. Well, it's a little more complicated than that. On the flip side, just like we talked about, you know, we've dove really deep into the weeds there which is a fun place to go sometimes. Yeah. But I also have to zoom out into into simple land because that's where I stay sober. Yeah. And in simple land, I do have to believe on a fundamental level that once I get sober, once I have put down the drink and become separated from it for a period of time where i no longer experiencing physical withdrawal or anything like that, not that I, I, I never did. Um, but once I get a certain amount separated from a drink or a drug, if i want to stay sober more than i want to drink i will stay sober i do believe that in spite of everything i just told you about the fucking homunculus in the brain yeah i have to believe on some level that that's true because that is what inspires vigilance in me that idea that i have to want it
1: yeah that's huge
0: and it's not just gonna you know uh, a friend of ours who's currently in the hospital, I think, um, says something that I love, which is he says, I'm sober today on purpose. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's little things like that, the, those little colloquialisms that always, you know, give me a jolt because it's so simple and yet so profound if you dig into it, that, that it, those things have always really spoken to me, those little, little one-liners like that.
1: So on the flip side, do you believe that if if you want to drink more than you want to stay sober, that's where it's going to lead you? Absolutely.
0: If you want to drink more than you want to stay sober, you're going to drink.
1: Tell me about a time that you've felt like that and overcome it.
0: Um, well, the, the honest truth is I haven't felt like that. I've always wanted, since getting sober the last time, I wanted to stay sober more than I wanted to drink. Uh, but my experience with relapse after six months of sobriety, after going to treatment and after going to AA for six months, I had this urge and it was not like nothing I could describe before this urge to drink this, this urge to use. And, um, I got on my knees and prayed. I was living in an apartment in, um, the Fort Sanders neighborhood of Knoxville, Mm -hmm. which is, you know, a stone skip from any beer store in any direction. I was living in an apartment there and I got on my knees. I got up. I went to, I put my coat on. I took my coat off. I went to the door. I put my hand on that door handle. I took my hand away from the door handle. It was very visceral. And that is because I was having a debate in my head. Yeah. And it was explained to me later on that once the debate starts, I've lost. Yeah. There can be no debate. The answer is no, because once the debate starts, it's a very good chance it's over, Yeah, in my experience. So I went from there to my sponsor's houseboat at the time. He had a houseboat, Mike, and I went to see Mike. And I talked to him about it. Man, I really want a drink. Well, got to pray about it, you know. About five o'clock, I said, Mike, you've been very helpful. I'm going to go to a meeting. I left his houseboat. Got on the interstate, and there came a fork in the road. One way was to the meeting. One way was my, where my friend Zach lived, who I knew would have some pot. I came upon the fork. I took a right. And that's as clear as day to me. Mm-hmm. What happened there? Yeah. That I wanted to use more than I wanted to stay sober. Because there was that decision point. And I made it. You know. Now, that's after having been sober. See, I believe that the... You have the obsession and then the compulsion. Yeah. The obsession is what ensures that I keep thinking about drinking. And that's what's addressed by the tools in AA is that obsession. That obsession, gets, it dies down. The compulsion, on the other hand, is what happens when I take a drink. That's, that's when you drink a bottle of X lax and try to shit just a little bit. Right. That's the compulsion. And that piece, once, once that is set in motion, it's done. I go until I'm blacked out or passed out. Yeah. Um, but if I can catch it at the obsession stage, I don't get there. I don't get to that place where I'm compelled to take a drink. Right. And that's how I see it. Now, you might talk to somebody in this room next week who says the exact opposite, or at least some variation of it. But that's how I see it. And that's, again, sort of how I have to see it in the sense that it it gives me a sense of there's the onus is on me. You're not responsible for my sobriety and that's that's a freedom that means there's nothing you can do to make me drink there's no nothing you can do no matter how bad you slight me or whatever that's not on you that's on me mm-hmm. and that that aspect of personal responsibility is actually very freeing because it means I'm not at the I'm not at your whim uh, you don't you don't get to tell me to drink or not that's a decision I make. Yeah. um, I haven't
1: heard the obsession and compulsion broken out in that way before. And it makes me think of something that someone else we know um, says quite often, which is how easy his disease has it versus how hard he has it. Because all he has to do is give in that one time and that's it. It's off to the races. And I think that's where that compulsion takes over. Um, But it's interesting, though, to think about the obsession piece and, you know, when you went right at that fork in the road, you you were very deliberate about calling that a decision you made. But it's interesting how automatic it seems at times and just...
0: Well, yeah. So, you know, and going back to what we were saying about uh, Dr. Sapolsky, maybe it wasn't a decision, but the framework that I have been operating on that seems to have worked for me to help me stay sober today is that on some level it is a decision I believe that because it it makes it um it it gives me a job to do Mm. you know it it keeps me active I'm, I'm not a passive bystander in my recovery I think that's the risk that's the risk of going down the road of less free will is that you can sort of then you can start to make the argument that I you know nothing I do matters and I don't have any consequences and why the fuck not. Yeah. Um, even though that's also a sort of spurious argument, but the, 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 for me, the thing that addresses that is to, to believe whether true or not, that I have some responsibility in that decision from this point on being sober. Yeah. Having been separated from alcohol that I do have choices to make. Um, Maybe it wasn't my choice ultimately, you know, to drink or use. But I think that fork in the road represents a number of different things. It represents things like, do I go to a meeting today or not? Yeah. It represents, do I call my sponsor or not? Do I pray or not? Um, because it none of those things maybe in themselves actually is what keeps you away from a drink, but it puts you on the path that keeps you away from a drink. That's right. You know. Yeah. So you, those are things that you choose, just or that we we tell ourselves we choose. Um, they're disciplines that you develop, and disciplines are developed over uh, out of habit, and um, you know, I think fundamentally for those disciplines to be adopted, there has to be some belief on the person of the the, the student or the young person in, in sobriety that there's advantage to adopting those disciplines. Yeah. Just like, you know, there's advantage, you know, to, to take up the discipline of lifting weights, you have to believe on some level that it's good for you or that it's going to give you some advantage.
1: Or give you, yeah, give you something, something that you want. Some yeah. advantage,
0: whether it's better physique, better mental health, uh, you know, get to stare at chicks. There is some advantage that you confer upon that activity that allows you to go from a state of rest to a state of moving. Yep. Because object at rest, will remain at rest unless some force acts upon it, right? Right. So that force is where I think a lot of that, you know, that action is in terms of what's the payoff. And that's where I think a big piece of of how we talk about sobriety and Alcoholics Anonymous and why we say, you know, we don't want to focus on, on staying drunk. We want to focus on the solution because that's the payoff. The payoff's the solution. There's some soothing that comes along with lamenting how shitty things used to be or, or in, you know, sort of that gallows humor of, you know, fuck, you know, that was awful. This sucks. Yeah. There is some, there's some soothing that comes along with that, but ultimately that's not what keeps people sober. What, what gets people sober and keeps people sober, I think, is the message that says, this is something that, that you, that you actually want, you know, and here's why, and here's why. Yeah. Because here's, you know, here's what you'll gain from this. Um, Or it may even start with, here's what you don't have to put up with anymore.
1: Yeah. You know. Yeah. And and being pretty early in sobriety myself, um, just over a year, um, it's taken those, like I can think of each one of those turning points that I've had with some of the key concepts. Like I'd reach a crossroads where it's like, okay, I'll do that, but I'm not going to pray. There's no reason for me to pray. It's not going to do anything for me. Um, I I could list 10 different reasons why I'm resistant to it. But then, again, from a sponsor, I asked him, because he prays every day. He says the third step and the seven step prayers. And he says his own little prayer to his higher power. And I asked him, I'm like, what does that really, what does that give you? What does that do for you? Is it working? And his Response was so simple, but it worked for me. in In response to "Is it working?" he says, "I'm still doing it." So whether it's working or not, I think is ultimately up to us to decide. And if it's something that becomes an important part of your routine and an important part of your recovery, of course it's working.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean the the proof is in the pudding, as they say. Yeah. Um, that it. You know, you can argue with these techniques. You can argue along the merits of of the validity of a particular belief, but look at the results. And that, you know, that speaks to the, um, and I didn't know this until very recently, um, even though I consider myself educated, but there's some talk about the psychologist William James in the the text of Alcoholics Anonymous, Mm. with reference to some of this discussion about a higher power. And he wrote a text called Varieties of Religious Experiences at the turn of the uh, 20th century. And it it turns out that's actually sort of like a a landmark in in psychological literature. So it's not just AA that thinks he's a big deal. Like in the school of psychology, he's kind of a big deal.
1: Wasn't that an approved... AA piece of literature at one point
0: I think that it might have been approved but it was not you know it was not written for AA sure it was just written by this guy and the whole you know the, the key takeaway from it I think what he did in that book is he looked at the effects of religious belief on the people not the merits of the belief itself mm. so he didn't look at the veracity of the claims of Jesus as the risen Lord he looked at what are the effects in the lives of the people that believe that? And, and how is that belief correlated to those effects? In other words, what do they gain by believing this thing? And in lots of cases, you find that these people gain uh, things like a sense of strength, a sense of community, um, a sense of purpose. Yeah. Those are all things that people gain uh, by believing in things that some of us think are, are imaginary. Just because we think they're imaginary doesn't take away the gains that those people are making. So that's, I think, the the fundamental piece to pull out of that as it relates to our discussion about the higher power is, you know, look at whether or not you want to, you know, believe in the Flying Spaghetti Monster. Uh, you know, look at the impact of that belief on those who who profess it. Yeah. And if that's something that you want, then start reading about the Flying Spaghetti Monster. Because it doesn't matter if it's a story, yeah, if it has that impact, um, and that I think is a very logical and objective way to look at things. And that's another thing about AA that really speaks to me. And a lot of people will, you know, sort of think I'm crazy when I say this, but actually, the, the things that the things that are proposed in a lot of the AA uh, text actually are are some of the things that, that it shares a lot in common with with uh, cognitive behavior therapy which is currently in vogue or any sort of be- dialectic behavior therapy, any of those yep. things where you're, you know, sort of you're, you're given the idea of here's a, here's a thought that you're going to have. Now, what are you going to do when you have that thought? Um, you know, classic example, you know, you get angry. And then the book has a prescription for when you get angry. It says, say to yourself or pray, God, save me from being angry. That will be done. How can I be helpful to this person? That's basically CBT.
1: It's like opposite action, right? You get a prompt. Yeah.
0: You get, you're you're taught to recognize that prompt and then you're given a response to that prompt and then you practice that response. And over time you adopt that response as more automatic. Yeah. I mean.
1: That's a great point.
0: It's like, it's, it's science, but it was before science. Yeah. You know, but. You hear what I'm saying? Like yeah, I'm not saying that, that 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 AA discovered CBT, but what I am saying is that it does share a lot in common with that same that method. Yeah, and it, and it makes perfect sense. Sure, um, that it works. So it's not to me, it's not hocus pocus. It's not actually the invisible god in the sky that's making you sober. It's the fact that these are logical things that are happening in your life. Um, just like you know, there are logical benefits from. From participating in a religious community, you get community, you get purpose, you get, and those those things beget other feelings and other actions. Um, so there is a lot of, to me, there's a lot of logic involved. There's a lot of, I don't know, maybe logic isn't the right term, but there's a lot of uh, stuff that just, to me, makes practical common sense. Yeah, and that 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 has really spoken to me over time because I've often thought, you know, I, um, a lot of my friends. And a lot of my my family um, are not people who were ever religious. And actually, you know, growing up uh, in Saudi Arabia, as I mentioned, I grew up around you know devout Muslims. Sure, I never went to church as a kid. I didn't start going to church until I was in middle school. And I remember having the distinct thought that you know if this whole thing is predicated on the idea that my friends in Saudi Arabia are going to hell because they can't say Jesus is their Lord and Savior, then this is bullshit. Yeah. that's <laughs> just, I, I couldn't accept it. Mm-hmm. You know, I it still can't. And I, I never, and I found a way to work around that, thankfully, uh, with the help of a, an enlightened, open-minded pastor. Um, but, you know, the idea is, is the same, you know. I, I don't have all the answers. There are numerous paths to take and there are benefits that are conferred upon believers. The same can be said for AA. The benefit of sobriety is conferred upon people that believe in the power of Alcoholics Anonymous. Mm.
1: Yeah, I like that.
0: You know, I don't, I don't even know what, a. you know, I, the last time I smoked pot would have been 2003. I actually quit drinking before I quit smoking pot. Oh, wow. wow. A couple of couple months but then so my sobriety date is actually the uh day after i quit smoking pot i lumped them together yeah some people you know what i like to say about that are we recording yeah we're good so what i like to say about that that piece is uh i have not met the person that's able to stay sober and smoke pot they could be out there you know they could be I, i just haven't met them yet yeah um no, that doesn't mean they're not out there. But I've met a bunch of motherfuckers in AA. I've not met the guy that can smoke pot and stay sober.
1: I've met my share of people, though, who still smoke pot pretty early on in their sobriety and seem to think it doesn't affect them.
0: Yeah. Uh, I mean, and here's the deal. Like, again, I mean, that's that's a. In some ways, it's an outside issue, right, as it relates to Alcoholics Anonymous. Yeah. Because the third tradition in Alcoholics Anonymous, of which there are 12, there's 12 of everything because that's just how they do. Yep. But uh, Dirty dozen. That's right. The third tradition is that the only requirement for membership is a de- desire to stop drinking. So it has nothing to do with pot. You yeah. know. So you, it's kind of like, you know, you can plead the third on that. But for me, I will say, here's what got me. Um. I woke up one morning after I had quit drinking gone back to AA and I was you know the uh, one thing about going back to AA smoking pot for me I was real cagey Mm. you know so I wasn't real open yeah I was kind of cagey not not the most productive way to be but I was still going and I wasn't drinking Yep. but one morning I woke up and my first thought through my sleep crusted eyes was I'm not going to smoke any pot today and I knew I was fucked because I knew I wasn't going to be able to do it. Mm. And sure enough, that was born out. You know, I would say, I would wake up and say, I'm not going to smoke any pot today. And I might make it till seven, eight o'clock in the evening, sometimes maybe even 10 o'clock. Uh, what's a hit before I go to bed? Yeah. And then I wake up the next morning. I hate myself for doing it because I failed. And I say, I'm not going to do it again today. And then I do it. And so that repeatedly over and over again began. It it didn't take as long as it did with alcohol, but the message sunk in. It was like, this is a thing that is going to just take over, you know, and it it already sort of had in the sense that it was determining. um, And I think it might be different now, you know, and I'll I'll give people that, you know, it's a little, the the atmosphere is a little more accepting and open now than it was then. So it's, it's more socially acceptable now to smoke pot than it's ever been. Yeah. Um, you know, so it was still kind of a dirty secret, you know, in the even in the early 2000s. I'd say, I mean, it was it wasn't so much of an open secret as it is today. There were people that I didn't want to know. Sure, you know, people, and so you limit your social circle, and um, you start to. I started to. I'll say, I I limited my social circle based on it. I started to plan my day around it. You know well, I want to go to this thing, but am I going to have enough time to go home and smoke pot first? No, I'm just going to go home and smoke pot. So, you know, in a way, for me, it was the same sort of animal. You know, it was something that it, uh, the obsession and compulsion feature was there in the sense that I was obsessed with it. Exactly. My, 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 My day revolved around it so much so that it was the first thing I thought about when I woke up and was the last thing I thought about when I went to bed. And that being the case, it very much reminded me of my struggle with alcohol. And so I decided I, I got to put it down, you know, but I knew I wasn't going to be able to do it without really coming clean with it Yeah. saying to somebody like, hey, you know, like I, I'm, I need to quit smoking pot and I need to lump this in there with some of this shit. Yeah. Now, some people will, will take it a step further. I don't. Some people will take it a step further and they talk about it. nicotine's a drug, caffeine's a drug, yeah. and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. But you know, I really think it's apples and oranges. I could see why people do that. That's sort of a defense mechanism. I did it myself. And maybe I'm... And, and the One thing I want to maybe end on is one of the most spiritual things I've learned in Alcoholics Anonymous is I could be wrong.
1: Mm, that's
0: huge. And... I could be wrong about everything I just said in terms of what it means for you for what it means for me. I'm pretty sure I'm right. Yeah. But in terms of like making broad sweeping generalizations about what, what it should be like for other people, this goes for everything I've said in the course of this interview, I could be wrong. You know, I'm open to being wrong. The, that has been a huge development for me. Um, in some ways, it's kind of a scapegoat because you say, well, oh, you know, I believe this, but I could be wrong. Um, <laughs> so in some ways, it, it kind of gets you off the hook. You don't have to ever take a position, right? But in a, in, but that's not the way I mean it in this case. What i The way I mean it in this case is I don't have all the answers. And what works for you might not work exactly. for somebody else. Exactly. And I, you know, I'm not a person who, um, you know, whatever works – Going back to what, what really spoke to me about, um, the idea of, of recreation therapy in college was the term quality of life. And when it became clear to, when that concept was described to me and I could start to think of myself as wanting to be a quality of life professional, Mm. that's when things kind of clicked for me is that I wanted to help people achieve their greatest quality of life, um, in, in some sort of capacity. Yeah. and if I could get remunerated for doing that in the form of money, then that would be terrific. Yep. Um. And so, if a person is able to achieve their highest quality of life, drinking alcohol, smoking pot, you know, whatever, it, you know, we can start to get into the realm of whether or not it's hurting other people, blah blah blah. Yeah. But, um, if if that enables you to achieve that that your your highest quality of life, pun intended. Uh, then that's fine. You know, that's not for me to judge. And I will still, I would not, um, I would hope that I would not want to, you know, I wouldn't cut, I wouldn't immediately, you know, um, put that person down a rank because that was their choice, I would say, because that would not be the person I want to be. Yeah. I want to be a person that's open to the idea that I could be wrong, that my way of life doesn't have to be your way of life. Um, and that ultimately it's about what enables you to have your best experience and to then hopefully contribute to the best experience of the people around you.
1: Yeah, that's great. I like that a lot. It doesn't sound like a scapegoat to me. It sounds (laughs) totally logical. I could be wrong. (laughs) I'm just going to predicate that with anything that I say. That's right.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I could be wrong, but. But I'm right. <laughs> That's but I'm right. definitely right. That's right.
1: Cool, man. Well, I think uh, I think we can wrap on that. Really appreciate you coming out and talking. It's been a lot of fun.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's been a great conversation. Yeah. Just, uh, I appreciate your, your invitation. and Yeah, man. And I look forward to listening to more conversations that you have with smarter people than me. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, man. Looking forward to chatting again soon. All right. Cue the outro music. Dun,
1: dun, 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 dun.
0: That's not the outro music. It's but... coming.